somebody said that this film's target demographic audience is 15 year old boys who were totally identifying with Carrie. Yeah, I don't think too many of them are going, I want, really want to be like John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, people, and welcome to episode 34 of Celluloid Junkies. 35. It is not. It is. No. Moonstruck was... Yes, it is. Okay, fine. 35. I am Luke Kane. <laughs> you really threw me there, Damien. And I'm here with Damien Heath. I'm always here with Damien Heath. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You looked like you weren't sure if that was going to end up being a compliment or not. I'm surprised you don't give me a descriptor in the way that I give you a descriptor. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to like mimic you. I have to shine in my own special way. <laughs> okay, Carrie. We are joined by Cassandra Kane. Cass, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How is it over there in ye old London? It's dark and miserable. Perfect kind of mood for a uh, De Palma horror. Check your hair and straighten your corsage because we're heading to senior prom at Bates High in Brian De Palma's 1976 art house shocker, Carrie. Don't invite Carrie to the prom. They're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> it's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White. The girl no one likes. We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her. And if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date to the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know, I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie... It will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <coughs> Carrie. <coughs> a new film by Brian De Palma. Based on the chilling bestseller. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Carrie's life began in 1973 as three pages in a trash can. The man who discarded them was 26-year-old writer and part-time teacher Stephen King. A supernatural revenge fantasy about a loser with psychic abilities? It was depressing. The lead character was based on two girls he'd known at school. Born losers. Served up like meals every day. Both died young. One from an unwitnessed seizure, the other suicide by rifle. Nobody wanted that story. I couldn't see wasting two weeks, maybe even a month, creating a novella I didn't like and wouldn't be able to sell, he later said. It was a good thing Tabitha, his wife, noticed the pages the next day while emptying the bin. You've got something here, she told him. I really think you do. And that was how Carrie survived her first brush with rejection and near extinction, on the wings of female observation, intuition, and influence. Her screen self would owe a similar debt to another equally powerful woman. The idea had sprung from two disparate sources. As a janitor at a boarding house, King had occasion to clean the rust out of the girl's bathroom. He was struck by the layout and tampon dispensers and how alien it all was. Then there was that article in Life magazine, which theorized that if telekinetic ability were possible in humans, it would be most present in adolescent girls. The rest of Carrie was built on personal pain. He was no stranger to schoolyard politics or to rejection. 
the finished manuscript for Carrie was turned down by 30 publishers. Bill Thompson at Doubleday called just in time. King received a 2500 advance against royalties. The novel hit shelves on April 1974 and sold a million copies in its first year. Paperback rights sold for 400,000. It was an exciting time for the Kings, who moved out of their trailer and into an apartment. By this time, studios were on the lookout for popular horror fiction they could adapt into a prestige genre film. Everyone wanted to repeat the success of The Exorcist. Lawrence Cohen, who would eventually write the screenplay, first came upon the manuscript in 1973, several months prior to publication, as a reader for a New York producer. He thought it was brilliant, the birth of a great American storyteller. The producer didn't share his view. In fact, there was no bidding war for the rights to carry. Everyone was reading Carrie, but studio execs, predominantly male, flinched at the idea of a horror film about menstruation. Undaunted, Cohen continued to champion the book, but there was no real interest. A year passed before he read about some producer who'd finally optioned the rights. That producer was Paul Monash, a plain-speaking, serious man with an eye for material. Monash had earned his stripes at Fox as the showrunner of the immensely popular TV show Peyton Place. After six years, he moved into motion pictures and brought in healthy returns on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Slaughterhouse-Five. Another year passed. Lawrence Cohen had moved to LA where he was looking for work. A friend set up a meeting for him with some producer in need of a story editor. His name was Paul Monash. As expected, Cohen didn't like any of the projects Monash pitched him. But then, just as the meeting was wrapping up, Monash mentioned an obscure novella he'd optioned called Carrie. Cohen couldn't believe it. This was the producer he'd read about. It seemed preordained, but there was a snag. The option was about to expire. Cohen had a few weeks to come up with the first draft, but he was young and passionate, so he worked. The first draft was submitted to Fox executives on a Friday as part of their regular weekend read. By Monday morning, the verdict was in. Fox had no interest in Carrie. The production went into turnaround. But Carrie was saved once more by female intuition and influence. Marsha Nassatir was the former literary agent who had sold Monash the film rights, but by 1974 she was a VP at United Artists, the first female VP at the company. Arthur Krim, the head of UA, liked to introduce her as our woman vice president. As soon as Fox passed, Nassatir called Monash. Not only did she give Carrie a new home, she had a casting suggestion, Piper Laurie as Margaret White. Like Cohen, De Palma had already read the book when he was asked to direct. He'd put the word out that he was interested. Once the rights were sold, he met Monash, but the two did not see eye to eye. According to Cohen, Monash was used to being wooed, but De Palma didn't go in for that. Luckily, because the film had moved to UA, it didn't matter. The emerging filmmaker had many industry supporters. One was Mike Medavoy, who happened to be the head of production at UA. Monash knew Carrie might not get made if the distributor backed out, so he made no fuss when he was overruled. The studio offered De Palma 1.6 million to make it. He asked for 1.8. The studio did not budge, so De Palma walked. The following week, he sheepishly accepted their offer, but he won the argument in the end by necessity. The film came in exactly $200,000 over budget. With the purse strings tightened, De Palma had Cohen remove the White Commission and other epistolary business not central to the narrative. He hired Betty Buckley to play Miss Collins and beefed up her role. The rest of the young cast were found in a series of casting sessions in Los Angeles in August 1975. George Lucas was also looking for young actors for his upcoming project, Star Wars, so the directors teamed up. Hundreds of rising actors were paraded before them in groups, unknowns with names like Christopher Walken, Kurt Russell, and Harrison Ford. Amongst the fray was another unknown, Sissy Spacek from Quitman, Texas. De Palma knew Spacek as the wife of production designer Jack Fisk, She'd painted a few of the props on Phantom of the Paradise. He thought she'd be a great mean girl, but SpaceX wanted the lead. De Palma thought she was too sophisticated, too pretty. Besides, he had his mind set on Betsy Slade, who'd given a touching performance as a teenager who falls pregnant in Peter Hyam's Our Time. At some point through the audition process, SpaceX was offered a commercial shooting the same day as the scheduled test. She called De Palma, hoping he would bite, but he told her to do the commercial. Furious, Spacek ran Vaseline through her hair, found an old ratty sailor suit, left her face unwashed, and arrived looking a total mess. I think that I felt so used and abused at that point, she said, because I knew I was not Brian's favourite, and that worked for me. I just decided I was going to go in there and get it. Perhaps the biggest casting coup was Piper Laurie. 
Laurie hadn't made a movie in 15 years, not since her Oscar-nominated role in 1961's The Hustler. She got the script from a former agent. I didn't care much for it, she said. Furthermore, she had no idea who De Palma was. Fortunately, her husband, Newsweek film critic Joe Morgenstern, did. De Palma, he told her, has a great comedic touch. Now believing that she'd missed the satire upon her first read, Laurie met De Palma, liked him and signed on. Months later, she arrived in Los Angeles to rehearse a scene with Spacek in De Palma's apartment. I had worked out a couple of really funny bits to do. Physical stuff. She didn't get very far before De Palma said, Piper, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to get a laugh. I realized then that we were supposed to be serious, she said. Principal photography began in early 1976 and shot in California for 50 days. The cast spent a week in rehearsal, shaping each scene in advance so De Palma could focus on the technical aspects of production. But he kept his young cast on their toes. One morning before shooting started, he called Spacek into his office. The actresses who played my schoolmates were there, she remembered. The girls made fun of me, criticized my dress, the way I wore my hair. Nobody would talk with me. According to Nancy Allen, Spacek explained to the girls that she would be keeping her distance on set to help her stay in character. Isidore Mankowski, the director of photography, was fired after a couple of days into production over creative differences with De Palma. He was replaced by Mario Tozzi. Tozzi would later describe working with De Palma as challenging. He wasn't very communicative. I had no friendly relationship with him, just a professional one. A variety of visual techniques were used to bring King's novel to life, including slow motion, split screens, and special lenses to carry focus between subjects in the frame. The post-production period lasted several months as De Palma and editor Paul Hirsch pieced everything together. In December 1975, the film's composer Bernard Herrmann passed away before the score was completed. De Palma approached Italian musician Pino DiNaggio, who'd gained recognition in Hollywood for his work on Don't Look Now. It was the start of a collaboration that exists to this day. Carrie opened conservatively on November 3rd, 1976 in Washington, DC. After pushback from 30 publishers, a major studio, and even the man who dreamed her up, Carrie had finally arrived. From a piece of refuse to, as Pauline Kael put it, a new trash archetype. Hi, this is Jamie Duvall. I'm the host of the Movie Geeks United podcast, and I'm pleased to have been asked to share a few thoughts I have on Brian De Palma's Carrie for the Celluloid Junkies podcast. I saw Carrie when I was a teenager, a young teenager, and uh, the two movies that frightened me most as a, as a young person were The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original from 74, and Carrie. And I could have predicted that Texas Chainsaw might have horrified me just by the title alone. But Carrie, the impact that that movie had on me was completely unexpected. Uh, mostly because for much of its running time, it plays like it belongs in the John Hughes wheelhouse. It has a real understanding of teenage anxiety and, and the anguish of trying to fit in when you you feel different. You take out the traditional horror elements or the telekinesis and all of that, and and you have a film that's very grounded in that reality. And that's what makes the third act so damn uh, affecting. It, it it came upon me completely unaware, uh, and um, and it was so incredibly powerful and vivid. And from that moment on, I became a major Brian De Palma fan. Uh, I know the rap on De Palma, but I think Carrie is a great movie to recommend to viewers who might believe that De Palma values pyrotechnics over people. Uh, because uh, I, 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 th I think one informs the other so beautifully in Carrie. And you could tell, I mean, the two lead actresses uh, were both nominated, which is uh, unheard of for a film in the horror genre. As a director, he also pulls out a, a tremendous amount of, of dark humor uh, in the most horrific elements of the piece. I mean, look at Piper Laurie's performance. I think he gave her a lot of freedom to create something that she viewed as a more comical creation. There are perhaps flaws that I can point out. There's this um, sequence in the movie where William Cat goes shopping for a tuxedo and... If I remember correctly, it's the footage is sped up and there's some kind of kazoo playing on the soundtrack. 
it feels really weird and outdated. But uh, again, you could look at that sequence as a, as another means of lulling you into thinking that the 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 movie's not going to deliver the jolt it ultimately does in that third act. The movie in that third act it literally is a descent into hell. You know, Carrie emerging from the fiery gymnasium. It's just spectacular. And I actually visited that gymnasium last year. And uh, <laughs> it was a great thrill to stand in the same slab of concrete that Sissy Spacek emerged from in that scene. And more on that ending, because throughout the movie, you feel so deeply for Carrie and the situation she's in both in school and at home. And she's so constantly confronted with with one humiliation, one abuse after another, that I think a lesser movie, when that ending comes around and she starts to kill off all of her classmates at the prom, I think you might be rooting for her. You might be saying, yes, she's finally empowered. She's going to get her revenge. But when I watch Carrie, I don't feel that way. I feel so good for Carrie when she's dancing with William Cat and she's lost in that romantic moment. And then when things go to hell, it's it's terrifying, uh, but it's also a, an extra layer of of tragedy because you realize that that moment when Carrie finally felt like she was valued that that can only be a moment that now the coffin is shut, the potential for that future is gone forever. I think that's a depth of emotion that a lesser movie would not have provided. A lesser movie would have channeled a, a much easier, less ambiguous response from an audience. And I think this, the impact of the film that I've been talking about, the, the way it lulls you into a sense of kind of well-being and normalcy before it becomes absolutely horrific is epitomized by that opening scene. Carrie in the shower kind of caressing herself with that bar of soap. She's coming into her own as a woman. The, the romantic, very lush music on the soundtrack as it zooms in over every part of her naked flesh. And then it, it turns bloody and humiliating in, in, in a split second. Uh, I think that's what the movie does in general. And then also taking off from that shower scene, you you can't help, especially knowing De Palma's M.O., to think of the shower scene in Psycho. And then you flash forward a few years later to the shower scene in Dressed to Kill. There are always, if you're a true De Palma aficionado, there are always these fun connections. Uh, I just think that Carrie is a masterpiece because... It's so deeply felt and weaved around that very authentic emotional center. The movie's not afraid to be lurid and loony. It's what makes the movie instantly relatable. And at the same time, one of the great thrill rides of 70s horror. That was Jamie Duvall, host of Movie Geeks United, which is a podcast I love. If you don't know them but are listening to us, what is wrong with you? Go check out the Summer of Shows, the Kubrick series, the Blu-ray reports. I actually thought to reach out to him because of an excellent series he put together on De Palma, which was so popular I think they found out De Palma had listened to it and enjoyed it. Thanks, Jamie, so much for being part of the show and for speaking so eloquently. So, Damien, tell me your thoughts, your relationship, your feelings about Carrie. Carrie is my favourite horror movie, so I'll just say that straight away. <gasps> And the audience gasped. <laughs> I can't remember the exact first time I saw it, but it was probably in my late teens, so probably going back close to 20 years, maybe a little bit more. I remember thinking it was really tightly made. There was something really artistic about it, which you didn't generally see in horror movies. I'd kind of gone through the 90s, and I remember one of the local stations here used to show a horror movie every Thursday night, and it would be stuff like the Friday the 13th series, and that's where I first saw The Hills Have Eyes, and some really good movies in there as well. But Carrie 
in amongst all of those kinds of movies that I saw, the one word that I came out thinking was this is art. Partly because of the techniques that De Palma used, which just generally weren't used in most horror films. Does it still mean as much to you as it did then? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those films that if you've ever been an outcast in any way, you appreciate and you understand what Carrie's going through. And so it's always going to have meaning to people like that. Cass, uh, what about you? I know that we must have seen it for the first time together. We'd have to have been, what, mid-teens? I don't, I'm not sure how young we were, but it feels like a childhood film. I don't ever remember it being scary, more just interesting and kind of exciting film. And I remember what struck me most about it was always the religious fanaticism component of it when I watched it for the first time and in those kind of younger years and re-watching it for this podcast, I think I took quite different things away from it. I remember being quite terrified of Piper Laurie in this movie at 15. <laughs> the boys! It's such a parallel between that scene where Carrie begs her mother, why didn't you tell me, mama? And she's uh, being told that she sinned and she doesn't believe that she has, that this is something that's natural, that it happens to everybody. And so there's obviously that fight between what she's learning about the real world and what she's been taught with religion. I think being gay and watching this film when I was still not coming to terms with that, but learning about how homosexuality was accepted. There is that kind of idea that having grown up going to church with a parent that was religious, my place in religion didn't really fit because I was told that if you're gay, you're going to hell. And so I think I drew unconscious parallel with that. And that's a very big voice of rejection. And Piper Laurie is big on screen. I had no sense of humour about Carrie at 15. I just identified with it really heavily. De Palma said that this film has an adolescent reality, and I think that's very true. At least it was true for me. But see, the thing is, Morty, that um, I knew how they felt. See, the whole thing just made me want to take her and shake her too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just her period, for God's sake. Did you guys read much of the existing film theory with Carrie? Yes. I wouldn't go so far as a lot. Did you guys notice any common threads about a lot of this film theory? That it's pretty much interpreted one way? I noticed the two major things that came up was the male gaze, specifically, and the, the monstrous feminine. Yes. <laughs> you know, one of them I, I kind of understand, and that would be the, is it feminine monstrous or monstrous feminine? Monstrous feminine. And I kind of understand that one. The male gaze, I have a big problem with. Really? Mm. Really. The principal's reaction to the period bloodstain on Mrs. Collins' shorts. I think it was far more identifiable in 1976 and that it was played for laughs because everyone knows that menstrual blood is more disgusting than regular blood. His squeamishness is less comprehensible today. The opening scene of Carrie, I think there's parallels that I was able to draw with one of the films that we've looked at before on this podcast, which was Picnic at Hanging Rock. And specifically with the pipe music and the slow motion camera work and this collection of girls who, in this case, they're either completely nude or mostly wearing white during these slow motion shots. Obviously, in Picnic at Hanging Rock, they were pretty much all wearing white. But this kind of combination, it indicates what it indicated in Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is this virginal innocence, which is then undone when Carrie experiences her first period. It's also a little bit referential to Hitchcock's Psycho and its famous shower scene kind of usurps that idea. But De Palma is definitely into Hitchcock homages, so you don't have to look too far to find them. But obviously, I think the terror here is internal, Carrie's own fear about her body rather than this external terror of a murder. But the scene also manages to break down the cliche of the sexy women's locker room by starting with these sensuous shots, you know, these extreme close-ups of Carrie naked while she's showering, all of the girls frolicking happily and having fun together in this public-private space. But then it subverts it by introducing basic bodily functions that really aren't all that sexy. And a lot was made of the male gaze and its use in Carrie. I read a complaint that the film sexualized Carrie's first period, which is kind of the point while also missing the point completely, I feel. The lead up to Carrie's first period is definitely sexualized intentionally, this idea of the shower scene. 
but the act itself immediately removes that sexuality and it tells an audience very explicitly that it's not a sexual act. Chucking tampons at a girl and saying plug it up is also not a sexual act, it's the repression of sexuality. Leveling one allegation at it that this is done from the male gaze and trying to sexualize young girls is erroneous. I found this thesis called Carrie's Choice from 2015 by Molly Collins, and she wrote that De Palma's Carrie constructs women as objects of male pleasure through emphasis on material, namely cosmetic, ideals of femininity. The invasive camera angles in this film that capture makeup application along with showering, dressing, and other activity performed in private spaces occupied by women works in retaliation to the rejection of beauty standards helmed by the women's movement and presents itself as a claim to a male right to objectify women and an expectation for a woman to comply. That is wrong on so many fronts, because the scenes where Carrie is putting on makeup are directly juxtaposed with scenes of Tommy putting on a suit so that he can take Carrie to the prom. So it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other, both of them are doing it. And I'm also not too sure what the supposed fix is supposed to be for these complaints. Maybe we could completely disregard the idea that young girls in high school have any interest in sex or makeup or looking pretty, and that for most of these young girls their sexual interest lies in males. Carrie is a story about a young girl experiencing a sexual awakening against this backdrop of a a really special time in a high schooler's life, which is prom, especially in America, while B being manipulated by a mother with either severe mental issues or just a a really out-of-control religious zealousness. I think it's only natural that we should tackle this by presenting the lead character as a young girl entering womanhood who has an interest in boys or men and play that against the sexual stereotype and the formula of what is sexy. And I think that's actually what De Palma does so successfully in this film. He plays against those typical female roles. But in order to do that, he must first display them so he can subvert them. I thought a lot about this actually when watching the film. If I put that hat on and I think, you know, as a woman watching this, how does it strike me? And I have to say, I I didn't get the sense that it was overly objectifying or unnecessary, you know, misogynism or whatever. I Because I I sort of feel like a lot of the acts by the women are very powerful and it almost feels like the onset of menstruation for Carrie is the start of her really owning herself, you know, and really taking control of her life. And also all the men in this film are either relatively meek or being manipulated or influenced in a positive way, in Tommy's case, by the women. Yeah, yeah, that's one, baby, yeah, yeah. One of the subversions that De Palma does that is atypical to teenage horror films is that Carrie doesn't engage in sexual activity. You know, it would obviously be really prevalent during the 80s due to the slasher genre, but it was already at this point an established trope that young women who had sex would die, so sexual promiscuity was frowned upon. But that trope also allowed for titillation among audiences. You know, mostly if you went to a horror movie in the late 70s and the 80s, you'd get to see some tits because the young women would be naked in this sexual way. To accuse Carrie of being Mm. naked in the same way as like, I don't know, Sorority House Massacre or Friday the 13th or any of those movies, and particularly in the case of Carrie's menstruation, is it's it I kind of feel like it takes this idea of the male gaze and it then determines that any nudity must be a sexual act when it's not. You know, contrary to that, I believe the sequence, this first sequence, it's written and it's shot with extreme care within the confines of its genre. Horror is regarded usually as closer to pornography than it is to art, and I think De Palma kind of mocks that. Is it porn? Is it art? Is it horror? Or is it all three of these not mutually exclusive things? Most of the film theory with Carrie accepts as obvious the link between her psychic ability and her sexual development, and that the story of Carrie follows this rite of passage into womanhood from onset to completion, even though you know puberty actually takes anywhere from two to five years, sort of happens roughly within six months in Carrie. Both occasions are consecrated in blood, first in the shower room and then on prom night, but from there interpretations vary. The context of most of the discourse is a society in which there exists no room for any expression of female sexuality that is not male positioned. King seems to support readings from a feminist point of view. 
When he describes the plot of Carrie and Dance Macabre, he says that she has a mild telekinetic ability which intensifies after her first menstrual period. So that's very deliberate. And he's talked about the book as a manifestation of male anxieties in the age of women's lib. He said the book is, in its more adult implications, an uneasy masculine, shrinking from a future of female equality. The character of Carrie throughout the whole book is a lot more in control of her telekinetic powers. Whereas in the film, if I was to criticise something from that perspective, it would be that it felt more that she was out of control of her powers for longer or that they were only triggered by being, you know, emotionally disturbed. And that's when the powers come out because women can't, you know, it could be interpreted as women can't control their emotion and then therefore terrible things happen, you know, when when they get frustrated or angry or upset. I found her more sympathetic in the film and in the novel she's quite vengeful mm. the film opens on the best moment of carrie's day because she's in the shower and she's alone it's peaceful and then it turns into horror not just because she's frightened because she's bleeding but because the girls around her won't help and then they develop into this mob and it's a frightening mob and they're screaming at her and they they're elated they're giggling extremely cruel it's like really sadistic and then of course for like a huge portion of the movie it's like carrie suddenly sandra bullock and she's getting you know door knocks from a handsome boy and she's going and trying on lipstick and she's bought a beautiful dress and then she's like circling and is dizzyingly in love with him at the prom once she's voted we get this second crash which is like that first one in that shower room scene where there's just this total flip and everything changes i think those scenes are are connected in in an aesthetic sense as well as in sort of this sort of political sense of it being about female maturation they're definitely connected in an aesthetic sense because Carrie's shower scene begins with a slow motion and so does the prom after they're named prom king and queen. Just quickly, the Carol J. Clover bit that I agree with is this quote where really she talks about the way that Carrie was able to affect young teenage boys. Carrie herself becomes a kind of monstrous hero, hero insofar as she has risen against and defeated the forces of monstrosity. Monster insofar as she has herself become excessive, demonic. Feminism has given a language to her victimisation and a new force to the anger that subsidises her own act of horrific revenge. Although the camera work of Carrie repeatedly invites us to take the perspective of Carrie's sadistic tormentors, the majority position throughout, and certainly the position that prevails in the final phase, is Carrie's own. I'm afraid, Carrie, this is hardly a criticism. You suck. Tommy? Did you say something, Tommy? Who, me? Yes, you. I said all shucks. Cats, you know what we didn't talk about? What? All of the stupid jokes we had about Carrie as kids. Did you remember Alien Mouth with William Cat? Yeah, and where he slowly he explodes. It's that scene where the teacher's reading out uh, the poem. Beautiful. Like his mouth just has this creepy extension that looks like <laughs> the alien in that film. I kept saying, did you ever stop to think that maybe Carrie White has feelings? <laughs> Do you ever stop to think? Hey, Carrie, I want to talk to you. It's about this attitude you have about yourself. I mean, you're always walking around, you know, with hair down, all moping around. Carrie? Come here, you big silly. I want you to look at yourself. Shelley Stamp writes in her essay, Horror, Femininity, and Carrie's Monstrous Puberty. By mapping the supernatural onto female adolescence, it constructs femininity as a subject position impossible to occupy, and writes that ultimately, Carrie is not about liberation from the repression of female sexuality, but from the failure of repression to contain the monstrous feminine. I was unable to find a copy of that particular thesis, no matter how hard I tried. The bulk of the essay was about, you know, Carrie, at the start of her development, she is faced with making a decision about how she's going to express her femininity. She can go the way of the teacher, Miss Collins, who doesn't wear a bra, who has a very kind of progressive view of it, or she can go the way of her mother, which who is obviously deeply, disturbingly oppressed about it, and that neither one is tenable, which is why Carrie ultimately self-destructs. Why is um, Miss Collins' style of femininity not viable? By putting on makeup and by making yourself pretty, you are appealing to a man's view of what it means to be feminine and beautiful and sexual. So it's a kind of value, but it's not the value that women deserve and should strive for. I can see your dirty pillows. 
Everyone will. Breasts, Mama. They're called breasts. And every woman has them. Carrie obviously has a very complicated relationship with her mother. What do you think, Damien, about Margaret White? Well, I think that she's wonderful in this role. Carrie is just one of a whole lot of religious-themed horror films that were coming out in the 1970s. The Omen was the same year, and three years before that was The Exorcist. And, you know, across in Britain, there was The Devils by Ken Russell, and there was The Wicker Man by Robin Hardy. This pairing of religion and horror was obviously very popular. There was this fight between second-wave feminism and what came to be known as the religious right. I think it was something like 190 of 210 million people in the United States identified as Christian in 1970. And most of those, 58 million were Protestant, 48 million were Roman Catholic. And it was around this time that the right-leaning members of those religions began to be grouped together as what was known as the religious right. And that was a group of Christian political factions that supported these socially conservative policies. In the midst of second wave feminism, they began to exert great political power in large numbers. So some of their main targets were like prayer in school, homosexuality, abortion, pornography. One of the things that they were really good at was organising themselves. And one of the things that that led to was door knocking, which is what we see Margaret White doing in Carrie. I'm here on the Lord's work, Mrs. Snell. Spread the gospel of God's salvation through Christ's blood. She's what we would call an evangelical Christian. So she believes in repenting and turning away from sin. Uh, For instance, she makes Carrie sit in this locked closet to atone for her sins after she has her first period. So she's praying to this makeshift altar of St. Sebastian, who was a third century Christian martyr who was shot to death by archers in Rome for concealing his belief in Christianity. Later in the film, I think it's just spectacularly done. Margaret White is martyred in exactly the same way. There must be a great internal struggle within Carrie between the religion that her mother has taught her and the realities of the outside world. She's a nymphomaniac. I mean, she even experiences her death sexually. She hides it barely behind this veneer of religious devotion. But she's so charged with sexual energy, it keeps spilling out in these extremely awkward ways. She's always talking about sex. She never stops talking about sex. I should have killed myself when he put it in me. And Piper Laurie has this sort of fleshy, pin-cushiony face and these small black eyes that sort of rove around and they seem sort of vaguely empty. And she kind of bellows. It's the tones of an evangelist. That's what Pauline Kael called it. But she has these pagan-like movements, and the language is very explicit. I mean, her mind is much more perverse than Carrie's. She's always telling Carrie off for being, you know, this sinner. But Margaret White is obsessed with sin. And yet she's only had sex twice in her life. And she liked it. (gasps) All his hands and her dirty touch in his hands all over me. (laughs) (laughs) The worst thing about Margaret White is that she's proven right. Carrie is having this amazing night. She's got this taste of acceptance and is receptive to it and then, you know, is exposed to it. And then, of course, it all comes crushing down. The pain is unbearable. And Margaret was right. They all laugh at her. And her pink dress is red when she comes home, which further supports this idea that Margaret White is some kind of prophet. I'm going to ask you both if you think Carrie is a villain. No, I don't. She was actually listed as a nominee for the AFI's uh, 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list as a villain. And I looked at that and I was just shocked that Carrie White was a villain. And I, I get that she destroys a school and kills a lot of people, but I've never, ever thought of Carrie as a villain. I agree with that. I still feel that Carrie's rage is perfectly justified. There's always collateral damage when people are pushed to the limit. Shelley Stamp wrote, While few critics fail to see Carrie as a monster in some sense, most view the havoc she wreaks as a positive rebellion against oppression. They believe she represents nothing truly terrifying and only threatens a repressive society we would all rather do away with anyway. I guess the problem is her rage is indiscriminate. As Luke said to me the other night that in Carrie's mind, Miss Collins is laughing at her, so... I was watching it this morning and there is a cut to Chris and Billy 
getting out from under the stage where they've been kind of waiting and it's dead silent. So it cuts from really like raucous laughter with that myopic vision to dead silence when you get that objective point, like that objective shot of the two of them leaving, which made me think it was in her mind. In the novel, I mean, a lot of people do laugh and it's described as a natural human reaction, you know, of shock and not knowing what else to do. And that includes um, Miss Collins, who in the book is Mr. Jardin. Uh, she doesn't die in the um, gymnasium. Uh, she survives at the end and, and kind of one of the last inputs in the novel is around her sort of feeling guilty about having laughed and having not protected Carrie. And I think she resigns, yeah, as does the principal of the school. On that, is there anybody who is a victim of Carrie's rage that you feel sorry for? Well, Miss Collins first and foremost. Yeah. Miss Collins definitely, but for me also Sue. Sue, Sue doesn't die. She doesn't die, um, but I, I feel like there's no closure on that. Yeah, she's locked in a chronic state of PTSD. <laughs> the whole prom sequence is amazing. It contains what I believe is the most Hitchcockian sequence in the movie. Do you know what I would be referencing, Luke? Well, it would have to be the the rope. I mean, it's such a heightening of suspense that is just sustained for so long. The fact that the bucket is wobbling at the end of the rope for so long as well, while Carrie stands beneath it. I mean, we travel all the way up the rope to the bucket, and then we travel all the way back down the rope to under the stage, and it's all done in slow motion. That act itself would be slow enough, but then to slow it down even further is such a Hitchcockian thing to do. Shelley Stamp wrote that the split-screen process refuses us access to Carrie's optical point of view, since both seer and scene are represented on the screen at once. She is rendered only as an object of specularity. He had used split-screen earlier in Sisters, and he would use it later in Snake Eyes and in Passion, and I think there's probably some other examples that he used it in as well. While he used it to great effect in Sisters, and he thought he could do the same in Carrie, when he shot it and was editing it, he felt that it didn't really lend itself to action as well as it did to suspense. And so he ended up cutting out most of the split screen that he had shot. He couldn't use a lot of those shots because he didn't keep the frame clean. In his mind, it was all going to be split screen, so he would only have the right side of the frame clean. So when it came to taking out the split screen shots, a lot of the time there'd be camera equipment or something in the frame and he couldn't. It's always been for me an exciting sequence and I always look forward to it when I watch Carrie. It's my favourite scene in the film. Really? By far. Sissy Spacek, who has been so animated, is now kind of reduced to being a statue the things that she does do like the quick flick of the head when she busts the lights and turns the lights all red when she's outside the quick flick of the head followed by those i think four cuts into her eyeball really close up as she flips the car that's got nancy allen and john travolta in it all of those things just make this scene as you say so exciting if I was to describe a scene to anybody from a De Palma film to get them to watch, it would be the prom sequence in Carrie. Carrie was released on November 3rd, 1976 in Washington and Baltimore and in subsequent weeks in Chicago, New York City and Los Angeles before opening throughout the rest of the United States. It debuted at number four in the box office charts and the following week dropped to number six, but as it added screens, it began to gain steam. In its third week, it hit the top of the charts, a spot it held for four weeks until the release of the much-publicised Dino De Laurentiis remake of King Kong. Excellent reviews and word of mouth saw the film retain a place in the top 10 until the end of January, by which point Carrie had grossed a very respectable $33.8 million domestically against its $1.8 million budget. That placed it as the 13th highest grossing film of 1976, a list led by Sylvester Stallone's Rocky, the Streisand vehicle A Star Is Born, and Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men. The only horror film above Carrie was Richard Donner's The Omen, also featuring a mischievous, rambunctious little kid. It was quite the year for youth acting out. Reviews for Carrie, as mentioned, were generally excellent. Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie were both largely praised for their performances and De Palma for his growth as a director. But the movie was not without its detractors, most notably those writing for the New York Times. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film three and a half stars out of four, 
and wrote that it was an absolutely spellbinding horror movie and an observant human portrait. What makes the movie's last 20 minutes so riveting is that they grow so relentlessly, so inevitably, out of what's gone before. This isn't a science fiction movie with a tacked on crisis, but the study of a character we know and understand. This sort of narrative development hasn't exactly been De Palma's strong point, but here he exhibits a gift for painting personalities. We didn't know De Palma, ordinarily so flashy on the surface, could go so deep. Richard Eder wrote the initial review for the New York Times, writing of De Palma that his apocalyptic scenes, bloody as they theoretically are, are too mannered and elegantly draped to be scary. Mr. De Palma has ordered universal overacting. Piper Laurie does it with considerable grace, the wicked witch in a children's pantomime. The marvel, though, is Sissy Spacek. She makes us perfectly aware that she is overacting, and yet she is very effective. It moves us, and, in truth, the main horror of Carrie isn't the real bloodshed, but our apprehension that her pleasure, as well as her dress, will be ruined by that bucket of pig blood. Vincent Canby of the New York Times stated at the onset of his review that he was a big fan of De Palma, but that he'd gotten away with murder passing this off as a horror film. He saw the film several weeks after the initial reviews had come out and when it was playing to the general public, so he may have been trying to buck the trend of positive reviews, or maybe he means what he says. Carrie may be the most benignly unscary horror film ever made, he wrote. Particularly loathsome of the film's prom night climax, Canby wrote that the sequence either was intended to be non-frightening or has been rendered so by having been badly photographed and edited. De Palma's approach to his guignol material is so boldly and I think wrong-headedly lyrical that the spectacle of Carrie destroying her tormentors has all the dramatic punch of a small child swatting buttercups. He then pointed out that horror, like porn, should not also try to be art. Pauline Kael's review for The New Yorker was as lyrical as the film. She wrote that Brian De Palma has mastered a teasing style, a perverse mixture of comedy and horror and tension, like that of Hitchcock or Polanski but with a lulling sensuousness. He's uncommitted to anything except successful manipulation. When his camera conveys the motion of dreams, it's a lovely trick. He can't treat a subject straight, but that's alright, neither could Hitchcock. This picture has some of the psychic grip of Taxi Driver, yet isn't frightening in the same way. No one has ever caught the thrill that teenagers get from a dirty joke and sustained it for a whole picture. She declared of SpaceX role, I don't see how this performance could be any better. Oscar voters took note of the performances too. SpaceX received a nomination for Best Actress and Laurie for Best Supporting Actress. In a year of such strong films, however, neither took home the award. Faye Dunaway won Best Actress for Network and Beatrice Strait got the award for Best Supporting Actress for the same film. It would, however, be the first of many nominations for SpaceX, who'd already shone in Terence Malick's Badlands and had been steadily putting herself out there as a great actress. She would get five further Best Actress nominations, including a win for 1980's Coal Miner's Daughter. She won the Golden Globe for that film too, as well as twice more, 1986's Crimes of the Heart and 2001's In the Bedroom. SpaceX did take home the National Society of Film Critics Best Actress Award for Carrie, an award that had been almost universally European in the previous decade and had gone to an American only twice before, 1971's Clute for Jane Fonda and 1972's Sounder for Cicely Tyson. Carrie was recognised by the American Film Institute when it made the AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills list in 2001 as the 46th most exciting film in American cinema. Lawrence Cohen, who adapted King's novel for De Palma's film, also adapted the novel for the stage in 1988. It would become the poster child for infamous Broadway flops, with terrible reviews and stage malfunctions plaguing the production, including an inability to drop the fake pig's blood on Carrie as it would cause her microphone to cut out, and the near decapitation of Barbara Cook playing Margaret White on opening night. Audiences were torn between cheering and jeering, and eventually Betty Buckley came on board to reprise her role as Miss Collins, but the producers withdrew their investment of $7 million, after 16 preview shows and just five performances for the public. In 1999, Cat Shea directed an in-name-only sequel to De Palma's original, The Rage Carry 2, which debuted at number two and grossed $17 million on a $21 million budget. It did feature Amy Irving as a school counsellor and briefly referenced Carrie White's destruction of Bates High School from the original, but apart from that, it focused its attentions on reaching the disenfranchised, specifically the goth crowd, with a generic, by-the-books reinterpretation of the material. 
In 2002, NBC premiered a three-hour pilot for what was initially meant to be an ongoing series and which was watched by 12.21 million people. But negative reviews stopped that in its tracks and the film was eventually released as a standalone TV movie. It starred Angela Bettis as Carrie White, who had previously been seen in Girl Interrupted and the Kim Basinger vehicle Bless the Child, before starring as the lead in the well-reviewed horror film May. In 2012, there was a second musical created, a rework of Cohen's original which fared much better. It lasted for 34 previews and 46 performances, and was picked up again in 2015 in London and Los Angeles. In 2018, the TV show Riverdale paid tribute to the original Broadway flop by centering a musical episode around its failure. And finally, in 2013, Kimberly Pierce, who had previously directed the Oscar-winning Boys Don't Cry and Iraq War drama Stop Loss, brought a remake of King's novel to the screen. It starred Chloe Grace Moretz as Carrie White and Julianne Moore as her mother. On a budget of $30 million, the film grossed $85 million worldwide and was met with mixed reviews, holding a 50% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes with the consensus reading that it feels woefully unnecessary. While a lot was made of the fact that a female director was tackling the material that De Palma had been raked over hot coals for, the film won both the Alliance of Women Film Journalists Award for sequel or remake that shouldn't have been made, and the Women Film Critics Circle Award for induction into the Hall of Shame. Trust me, Carrie. You can trust me. Trust me, Carrie. Damien, as a special treat, I have prepared a rendition of the opening number of Carrie the Musical. Okay. Which is called Plug It Up. (laughs) There is some footage on YouTube of the musical, though. There isn't really a song called Plug It Up. How would it go if there was, though, Luke? I don't know. I'm not even going to try because that would be very embarrassing. Cass, you've watched the remake because we saw it together. I remember leaving the cinema and being unimpressed and it was obviously very forgettable. And that was the same feeling I had when I left the cinema from Carrie the Rage 2 because I made Dad take me to that because I loved Carrie so much. I watched the Rage Carrie 2 this morning. Yeah, okay, and? You know, I didn't think it was as terrible as I thought it was going to be. I thought, you know, in the mould of a film like The Craft, it worked. And it probably should have been marketed differently. It was marketed as a sequel to Carrie so that it didn't really have to explain the telekinesis. It didn't have a lot to do with the original. They tried to tie it in with these kind of meaningless asides. One was having Amy Irving. The other one was she has the same father as Carrie, it turns out. In another scene, they actually, Amy Irving takes Rachel to the remains of the school from the original. But apart from that, there wasn't a lot going for it in terms of being a sequel to Carrie, but I thought it was a passable horror movie. I think it was better than the remake. Yeah, from memory it was. I remember when I walked out of the remake, I said to you, it's artless. Yes, it was. It was extremely generic. Cass, did you manage to read Pauline Kale's review of Carrie? I did. What did you think of it? A very enjoyable read. I mean, I don't know that I completely agreed with everything in the sense that I don't take away as much art from the film as I think both of you and Pauline Kael. She was more blind to its flaws than usual, especially when she wrote that William Cat is a fantasy of Redford at 17. No. He is not that. He is alien mouth. (laughs) (laughs) He is not Hubble Gardner. One thing that I loved that she said was that it was the first time a De Palma film has had heart. Hmm. Another thing I liked about Kale's review was when she described Chris Harginson with her lewd dimples and puffed ringlets. That just seemed like such a dirty way to describe her, but perfect. I really love the shot of Chris Harginson licking her lips. Mm. After the blood come the boys, like sniffing dogs, running and slobbering and trying to find out where that smell comes from, where the smell is, that smell. All right, guys, are we ready for the quiz? Mm. Ready as I'll ever be. Damien, you're up. Carrie creates her own grave at the end when she burns down the house over her head. What was originally planned for this scene but abandoned when it proved too difficult to film? Uh, it's a very good question, Luke. I'd just like to consult a couple of websites no, first. No, I'm afraid you, that you allow isn't allowed. To? No, okay. Uh, I'm really not sure the earth was going to implode and suck her down into the centre of it. Cass, you know, don't you? Um, we're supposed to be crushed by stones. Yes, that's right. Raining rocks. Well, they sort of half got it. They did, yeah. There's a scene where you can see something coming through the roof. Looks like giant rocks coming through the roof. Cass, in which scene is an actress walking backwards, but De Palma has reversed the frame? I believe that's the final scene with Sue Snell going towards the grave. Okay, well, 
That's zero for Damien and two for Cass. You can't give her my point. Well, she got it. Oh, this is just... I feel like maybe Cass might have got an email from Luke earlier this week. Damien, whose name was misspelled in the original trailer to Carrie? Uh, Piper Laurie. Cass, do you know? Stephen King. Damien, what an embarrassing display. This feels like a <laughs> setup. No, I think this is your. This is the issue with um, sibling telepathy. I have a sense of what Luke will ask. <laughs> You're at a distinct advantage that I don't have. Yeah. Yeah. Cass, which two cast members had dated prior to filming? Amy Irving and William Cat. Jesus Christ, Damien. I mean, you should just walk away. You should just get up and leave. <laughs> well, I've got to I've got to tell you my thoughts on this movie and what we're doing next month, so I, I can't do that, sorry. When rumours of a Carrie remake circulated in 2011, who did Stephen King mention as a possible candidate to play Carrie? This one is going to blow your mind. Sandra Bullock. Lindsay Lohan. I can see it. Really doesn't matter if you get this right. I think you've pretty much got this one in the bag. What other famous <laughs> fire scene had been filmed on the same NGM lot as the prom night scene in Carrie? Oh, I don't know. It was actually the... Do you know, Damien? Firestarter. No. What a letdown. The end of the quiz, you lean forward like you know <laughs> the answer. a terrible go at the answer. <laughs> The towering inferno. And it's just a brainless guess. It was the burning of Atlanta in Gone with the Wind. Significantly more memorable than Firestarter. No, it wasn't. I have one for you guys. Oh, okay. How does Carrie's mother get killed in the novel? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, I read the book years ago, but I have such a vague memory of it. She got eaten by a shark. Well, actually, it's much more sinister than that, Carrie imagines her mother's heart and stops it. How did her mother die in the 2002 TV movie? No. No, I can't get it, can you? That's right. Uh, Heart attack. What, that they don't connect with Carrie's assaultive gaze? She actually just has a heart attack and dies. Even though they very easily could with an extra shot. That's right. She just coincidentally has a heart attack. That was the change they made. Yeah, I I believe that's the case anyway. And Carrie also survives that version because it was supposed to be a pilot for a TV series. And her and Sue Snell make a getaway. (laughs) Oh, God. Together. I'm not even kidding. All right, guys. Well, we've reached the end of our Carrie episode. Final thoughts, Damien. Five stars. It's still my favourite horror film. Four stars. Yeah, I think it's a great, really fun film. For me, that's very interspersed with how much I enjoyed it as a child and in some ways now watching it, it's hard to kind of separate. Am I loving this so much just because of how great a film it is or because of the nostalgia surrounding it? Four stars, you are very withholding. I gave it five stars. A part of me knows the film so well that I'm almost inoculated against it. So it it all comes at me now from this weird distance where I'm not actually seeing the images as much as I am catching the images in my memory. I don't know. It's a weird thing to describe. I mean, look, it just meant so much to me and I still think it's a beautiful film with so many merits, Sissy Spacek um, and Piper Laurie and just De Palma's uh, like sensual eye. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you to Cassandra Kane for co-hosting this episode with us all the way from London. It's been a pleasure to have you, Cass. Thank you, although I do feel like um, I've half heard a lot of what you've said. <laughs> I hope it comes through okay. It'll all be new to you when you listen to the show. But thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode of Celluloid Junkies. Uh, When we come back next time, we will be locking ourselves safely away as we talk about David Finch's 2002 thriller, Panic Room. You did not. You did not. Oh, I did. Wow, that's really cool. Of all of all Fincher films, Panic Room. This month I had, or this, this episode, I had just this seemingly unending list of films that I wanted to choose from. I was thinking, okay, well, we're, you know, we're about a month away from potentially voting out the most toxic president that America has ever had. And I thought, what, what kind of political film could I do? And I thought, well, the best, best political film is All the President's Men. Then I decided, well, no, that's the same year as Carrie, and I've kind of been following the same year and same time as your episodes, Luke, lately, so I thought, I can't do that. Really, it was between, like, The Florida Project and Panic Room and The Insider were the final three. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Cass, are you up for it? If you have me again, yes. <laughs> 
Well, being the biggest Jodie Foster fan here, I think you need to be up for it. Should I stop recording? We're still recording. This is where we get gold in the can. I say that every time we stop recording to Damien Moore, gold in the can. (laughs) I liked it. I liked it. Well, all that dirty touching on his hands on me all over me. I should have given you to God when you were born. And I was weak and backsliding. But now the devil has come home. 